hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer and Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what are we talking about today? Today is a special episode. We are going to discuss slasher movies. Michael, what are we drinking? I am very pleased to say we're drinking Snuggy Irish Red Ale from Textile Brewing in beautiful Dyersville, Iowa. Cheers. Cheers. Just the smell on that. If you gave me a glass of this and blindfolded, I could smell it and go, oh, this is a red ale. Malty. That malty is, it's so malty. It's beautiful. Great red color. Really great. This is another one I brought back. They sponsored us with this beer. I was back home. I contacted them. I said, hey, this is what I'm doing. They're pretty new. Three or four years they've been around. When I go home, Textile is a must stop. It's about 20 miles or so west of Dubuque, where I'm from. It's where the Field of Dreams is, Dyersville. People, oh, if people will know, that's where, that's where it is. And they're going to be having a game there, an actual Major League Baseball game. The Yankees and the White Sox are going to play at the Field of Dreams. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. I mean, that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's a beautiful setting. I met the brewer, one of the brewers, Nick. I said to him, I said, are you guys ready? I mean, it's a major league baseball game, and it's a small town. And he said, well, we've got a lot of lagers and easy baseball drinking beer. I contacted them, told us what we're doing, said I'd love to put... I wanted to do a red ale for slasher movies. Of course. Makes sense. Yes. And um, I knew I had this beer before, and it's such a tasty beer. And I said, I would love to put you guys on. And they he invited me out. He hung out. He's way into B-movies. He likes movies in general. He likes beer, obviously. He's a brewer. Obviously. And really, they just took great care of me. As a red ale, that malty flavor, like that yeah. is enjoyable. You can totally picture yourself just sitting out like in a cornfield, maybe watching a ball game and knocking these back, just indulging in too many hot dogs, just going, <laughs> on this day, this, this is a cheat week, you know, in one day. There is some history about this brewery. Yeah, it had been a pajama factory, so it's textile. And snuggy. They, they were snu- snuggy, exactly. And what they do, go online, check them out. I've done a couple posts. I did a post uh, with several pictures, the exterior. It's a cool building. What they've done inside, really, really cool. And they're doing some fantastic beer. I mean, they do this. They do some lighter beer. Uh, you know, it's the Midwest, so you know you're gonna have a lot of lighter beer drinkers. But they're doing some. They're doing this. They're doing some great Belgian beers. They're doing really cool stuff. I'm always proud to represent where I'm from. And thank you to Textile. For, thank you, Textile, for sponsoring this episode. Absolutely. And I, he seemed kind of happy that it was gonna be on a slasher. <laughs> you know, because he liked a good horror movie. And I mean, slasher movies there. Essentially, slasher movies to me are complete B-movies. We could pick any slasher. We're going 1974 to about 92. We bookend it with Black Christmas in 74 and Candyman in 1992. Just in that area, we're not going to get too far into the meta slasher, the scream. We won't be discussing that. Yeah, the postmodern slashers. Where they're talking about slasher movies. You know, where they're self-referential. We're going with the real, the nitty-gritty. For some reason, slasher movies are an area where there's a lot of, oddly enough scholarly articles on it and our time period like anything our time periods don't exactly line up with theirs but that's okay but we have our own opinion and we're allowed to do that more often than not i saw 1978 it it starts halloween Halloween. and kind of ends in 86 like april fool's day is often seen as like the end of the, the classic era you know we did because black christmas is such a straight up slasher movie it influenced halloween 
And I think Candyman is a nice bookend on the other end because it is sort of the last slasher movie before you get into the screams. We have had discussions about, in general, trying to define slasher movies. And I brought up myself that before this, besides Halloween and Friday the 13th, it's not one of the areas that I really... I like horror movies. It's not the subgenre that was my favorite, but I've watched a lot now. A lot getting ready for this episode. <laughs> I, I had seen a number, like you, I mean, of course, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, because I had seen a lot of them and I watched some that I hadn't seen. One of the things I did, I was not the sequel guy, but I, I was into the slasher movies. And so let's at least have a discussion on trying to come up with some... Even if we don't end up with an agreement on definition, like we both have Under some the theories. Umbrella, yeah, yeah, you're going to have these tropes, if you want to call them, things that if you're watching, you go, oh, this is a slasher movie. You know, I was thinking, okay, you have a serial killer generally spreading mayhem or fear among young people, be it teens or college age, in a typical middle class setting. Looking into it, we use that term slasher now all the time. I mean, when you see, mm-hmm. like you hear, like slasher movie, you know exactly. But when these films were still com- were coming out and film credits from Roger Ebert to entertainment magazines like Variety to even scholars on the subject, they were using different terms. Like, Because one of the first terms that came out was like a stalker movies or revenge movies and or dead teen movies. Well, and it, it, it's, it's like film noir in that way. They didn't say, we're making a slasher movie at the beginning. Just like they weren't making film noir. It wasn't until someone looked back and went, now we have this genre, we're going to give it a name. And it became the slasher. There's no 100%. Here. I agree. There's, There's no because, 100%. Because as soon as you said the young people being <laughs> preyed upon, I thought that. And then I immediately wrote in my head an outline for a movie where a group of 40-somethings get together. They all survived some trauma 20 years ago. And they get together. And then over the weekend, they're all getting killed. You got these middle-aged folks getting killed. And that's a slasher movie. And it doesn't have to be a man because one of the most iconic of all time is Friday the 13th. And the killer was a middle-aged woman. It was Jason's mom, Miss Miss Voorhees. So most people forget that in yeah, the first so, movie. So anytime somebody says to me, you know, a slasher film has to have this, we can find an yeah. example. Yeah, but I think in general you're going to find some characteristics. One, you're generally going to have the villain is generally going to be a human being or was a human being. They're not forces of nature like a shark, like in Jaws. They're not ghost or Frankensteins, or vampires, or demons. But, I mean, like I'm saying, I'm just trying to put some general things I know, but look at the catalog. Again, though, as soon as you say that, you go, well, Nightmare on Elm Street and Candyman. He was, but he's still a supernatural being. He was a human being, just like Candyman. He was, but he's killing people in their dreams. So it's like they don't have to be that. But I'm trying to put some why these movies get grouped together. Then there has to be some sort of tragic moment or drive there's something that happened in the past that triggered them in the future you have to have a body count one death two deaths generally not well, gonna people be. have to get murdered i would say that is probably the only thing i would say 100 percent. people have to be getting yeah. murdered and then the instruments of death even though once again we're probably gonna disagree on generally they're close proximity <sighs> bladed weapon now absolutely not i, I totally no no I, no i'm saying there is no disagreement yeah. because over overwhelmingly it is slasher yeah. for, a, for reason a reason because it's often it's a sharp edge yeah. it's a knife that's why this genre has been taken a task as being sort of anti-woman misogynistic it is the male gaze most of the instruments of death penetrate 
going on. But that's there. what weapons do. It, I, I mean, it'll be assigned yeah, things but, to it but you're, and but, symbolism and everything yeah, like that. Yeah, but, but there is that symbolism because you're not using guns. Like you said, getting in close. Yep. More often than not, overwhelmingly, that is the situation. But the body count, it's been pointed out many, many times, more often than not, is pretty even. Yeah. Men that, and women dying. In the movies I watched, I kept count, and it's pretty even. And the same thing, in general, you're, the age group is generally going to be youth, in the end, I don't think there's a rigid formula, but there's enough set of characteristics that are common among a large group of them. If you graph them, there's going to be outliers saying, we're going to throw this out. Because we each watched a bunch of movies where, oh, well, they didn't have a final girl. They had a final boy. Exactly. Or, although generally the vast majority are male is the villain, there's a couple that we said, April Fool's is a perfect example, even though there was really no one killed in April Fool's. Right. The villain was a woman. The original ending was supposed to have her brother coming back to actually kill her. Yeah. <laughs> no, because we just did My Bloody Valentine. And it's not set in the middle to upper class white world. So they moved that mind out. But if we did a graph and started putting pinholes and, and little things, you would have a bunch of things clustered. But yeah. there are going to be exceptions. That's why I say my thing and call it wishy-washy <laughs> fence sitting. You know it when you see it. You watch a movie and you go, that's a slasher movie. And someone says, well, why? And you go, well, because this hooded yeah. figure is going around killing those teens or those college-age people. Often they're, they're doing things that socially they're not supposed to do. You're taking Drinking, drugs, having sex. Yes, premarital sex. You're not supposed to do that. Things that old people would look down upon. But then often or not in these movies too, people are killed just randomly as part of the body count. I tend to be more on the side where I think there's enough rigid characteristics that when you're looking at them, you're going to see that they have some commonality. Now, every single movie that I watched, there was only one or two that they followed exactly the template that was laid out in Halloween. Everything else, oh, well, they removed that or they changed that. But enough where you're like, oh my gosh, these movies seem together. Now, you mentioned our discussion point is between two periods. And why are we doing that? 1974 is when Black Christmas came out. I had never seen it. Neither had I. It is something that slipped by me for years and years. I was aware of it. I've never watched it. Found it on YouTube. And that movie is fantastic. It's really funny. It's Bob Clark. Christmas Story. Children shouldn't play (laughs) Play with with dead dead things. things. Which we did. (laughs) Exactly. uh, Episode. I can't remember which episode it was yet. (laughs) We'll link it out to our show notes. (laughs) But it's Bob Clark. So there's this kind of funny humor that runs through, but it's bone-chillingly scary. It's got all those tropes. You got this faceless killer. You never see the killer. What's just his eye. Just his eye. Creepy. Which is disturbing. And a hand. Yeah. And in a shadow here and there. But you never really get a, a clear shot of him. Even more scary is it ends on this terrifying note where they leave the final girl alone in the house. They haven't really bothered looking the house for the killer. So you know the killer's still in the house and everyone just leaves her. So you know she's pretty much doomed. In fact, in that movie... I'm going to call the villain Billy. He always calls the sorority house when he's done with the killing. And at the end, you hear the phone ringing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he killed her. And those phone calls, he's just like yelling. It's gibberish. And those phone calls are some of the scariest things I've ever heard. And I will say something you said. There's no motivation that we know of for this guy. There is no backstory. It's just a rando. Freddy Krueger, he was killed by people. Or Jason is avenging this. And Michael Myers did this. It's like, this is just rando. Which is even scarier to me. It's just having some rando coming out of nowhere. Similar to Black Christmas's final exam, where the slasher, there is no backstory. We know nothing. Faceless killer, 
killed at the end. Now, there was a novelization of that movie, which is odd, that provided a little more backstory, but still, it's one of these faceless killers with no tragic that inciting That was such incident. a thing, though. There was a huge thing. I, I don't think they do it anymore, but that used to be... I remember, I was a kid, I got a novelization of E.T. I had one Goonies. Yeah, that was... It came... With the movie, somebody would do a novelization yeah. of it. I don't know if they do that anymore. I'm not sure. Like, oh, That's ha- a 70s, 80s thing. Yeah. The Thing. I read the novelization <laughs> of The Thing. Are you surprised? I'm surprised you haven't read it. I read, honestly, I had what? Goonies and Oh Heavenly Dog on my bookshelf when I was a teenager at novelization. They just admitted that. The slasher genre, we're using 1974, but people go back to Psycho, they go back to Peeping Tom, they say, if you follow that tree down to the roots, you're getting to those two movies, the early ones that kind of influence the guys making the ones. Here's the thing, Jason, you know, more often than not, you said, there are exceptions, but it's a human killer. And we were talking about this because we've been trying to figure out why did this explode when it exploded? And one of the things we came up with was the 70s, like the country had just gotten out of Vietnam. You had the demon, the exorcist movies of the 60s and 70s, where it's this supernatural death and mayhem coming from out there. And now it's the idea of Ted Bundy situation. You know what's even scarier than a demon is your neighbor stalking and killing people reality is terrifying what do you think in the 70s the makers of these films were truly gearing towards a youth audience even though most of them are rated r and during the 70s we're coming out of the vietnam war in fact one of the great special effects artists of these movies tom savini was a photojournalist in the vietnam i mean he came out of this a young kid who's now going to watch these movies they watched the nightly news with their parents of the graphic war on the news for the first time. We had one of the worst economic periods in the country to this point since the Great Depression. We also had for the first time coming out of the, the summer of love, the divorce rate skyrocketed from 2.2 pe- divorces per 1,000 Americans in 1960 to by 1980. 5.2 per 1,000 Americans. The misery index, which is unemployment plus inflation, skyrocketed during the 70s. We had Watergate. We had Nixon. So if you're a youth and you're like, I can't trust my government, my family's breaking up. Interesting because something we talked about is yeah. you don't see a ton of parents. There's not a lot of parenting There's in, no. in, in this entire genre. No, I agree. I think when you do see adults in these movies, either they're uncaring or they do actions that result in the youth having more issues with the killer. I'm thinking of Chief Newbie and My Bloody Valentine. He keeps the secret that there's a killing going on. And you see that where they're either not there, they're unresponsive parents, or they're uncaring parents. And I think all that kind of came together. And also the point you made, which is we had physical monsters in horror movies in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And as you point out, also, the horror became psychological. It's your next door neighbor. It's a human being. We'll discuss Halloween in a second, and we'll talk about economics. But you had teens in an environment where they couldn't rely on anything. And you had a killer that was, in some ways, even though a human being, kind of a force of nature where they it's could do things. chaos. Yeah, exactly. You're, they, well, you're a teenager. You're self-absorbed. You're going, you're going, oh, my life. My parents are divorced. This happened. This is stupid. You know, I can't find a job, blah, blah, blah. And then someone comes in and shows up and goes, you know, it's even worse than that, getting stabbed to death. And that's what I do. I'm introducing this into your life. It can get worse. 
or a teen who can't put their finger on such big items such as like the economy and the social framework the breakdown of the traditional family or politics they're like this is an unrelenting killer that's that force that we can't finger but that's causing me so much mayhem in my life so all that being said one can also look at this and say it's capitalism because Halloween was a hit. Oh, yes. Friday the 13th, they fully admit there is no beating around the bush. They don't try to hide it. They say, we were just trying to cash in on Halloween. That's what a lot of them were. They were all just trying to cash in on Halloween, which is interesting because you get into the 80s when it was this explosion of capitalism and it was a very excessive decade you go back and look at the yuppies and you look Brett Easton Ellis novels it was just over the top and these movies just became over the top as everybody tried to one-up each other I mean you go back and watch Halloween and it's super scary not bloody no there's not a ton of gore and a lot of it is what happens off screen or just seeing Michael Myers sit up behind her that's terrifying i mean tom savini even said he's like he did friday the 13th and then he said we just kept trying to think of different ways to kill kids <laughs> that was it and it, it's pretty awesome that you know he said that and he's amazing it's almost like the bond gadgets where you go to the early bond films not that many guys they start adding gadgets and things get more and more over the top these they're how are we going to kill people that became a huge thing of excessive they can get super brutally violent i'm pretty desensitized but there are times where you kind of go whoa that was a dark mind came up with that as you mentioned you can't talk about this genre without talking about halloween coming out in 1978 because that movie made 70 million in its total theatrical release one of the all-time most successful independent movies and that caught on and that movie laid out a template. It is an iconic movie. It's interesting to me that one of the biggest, most important names in the genre, John Carpenter, yeah. thing when it came out in 1982 was not a hit. It has since become very popular, but people don't know or they forget that when the thing came out, it was a huge flop. And I'm convinced one of the reasons is it was like right in the heart of slasher movie time. Oh, yeah. And so people were like, oh, well, you know, I don't want to see this amazing movie. I'd rather go see Jason show up and slash some people or go to Funhouse, you know, go to this or this. He made this amazing, one of my favorite movies ever. In Halloween, they cast, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis, who became a scream queen because she went on to make The Fog, Terror Train, and Prom Night right in a row after this. I mean, I have no idea why they chose her. I've always been a fan. Yeah. I'm watching The New Girl with my wife. I know, not at all related to no. this, but she plays Zoe Deschanel's mother in it, and it cracks me up. But her mom, gently was in Psycho. And clearly and, there's a tie there. And she was in The Fog. She is the scream queen. And of course, I think everybody of a certain age totally crushed on okay. her. And I mean, I watch Halloween at least once a year. How effective that movie is, is I've seen it. I mean, how many times have you watched Halloween? Generally... I mean, Every Halloween, I always watch horror movies during October. Absolutely. I watch them year-round. Yeah. <laughs> in, in October, but October it's, it's a special month. Absolutely. And it's interesting because my wife is not a horror movie fan. The only time, like maybe once every four years, she'll indulge me and we'll go and see a horror movie. But she likes Halloween. It's a testament to how good the movie is because every time I watch it, I'm always scared for Lori. I know that movie front to back. 
and I worry about her. I go, oh man, I hope she makes it this time. And it's the same DVD I've been watching. <laughs> it's not changing. Jane is not a huge slasher. She'll like a good horror movie. There is violence against women. And in no way, shape, or form is that being condoned. But it is something you got to talk about. So Slumber Party Massacre, which is just like an absolute slasher by numbers. You have the crazy guy coming and killing a bunch of women. It's Amy Holden Jones directed that. But when people go after these and say they're anti-woman, that's the one people will point to. That's the first one they'll say, hey, a woman directed this. And even she has spoken out. She doesn't think it's necessarily a misogynistic genre. I don't know if I wholeheartedly disagree because it is from a male perspective. And, you know, especially being a kid in that era, one of the things you wanted to see was naked ladies. You know, I'll admit it. I'm not a parent, so don't take advice from me. But the last thing you want to tell your kids is, don't you watch that. Because then you'll watch, you'll watch Night of the Creeps. 100%. 100% you're going to watch it. You know, and yeah, and one of the things we liked was we're like, oh, here comes the nudie scene. Yeah. It was never guys. It was always naked ladies. So it is a very male genre. I know people will argue against that. I just personally think you can't. You're not going to argue with me about this beer, are you? <laughs> I'm not going to argue <laughs> with about this beer. The Snuggy. Cheers on this one Cheers again. Cheers again. Thank you so much, yeah, Textile Textile, brewing. thank you. I brought one can apiece. Could have easily done two. Oh, yeah. I wish the cooler had a bunch, and after this, we could just sit on your front porch and be like, yeah, let's talk about movies some more. <laughs> that maltiness, even as it warms a little bit, it just opens up. There's a little fruitiness to it. There's like, like a bit of a deep fruit flavor. But it's that maltiness that we've talked about that when you go in to a brewery. That's the smell that reminds you, like, something's going on here oh, yeah. right now or recently. And especially, I mean, you know when you walk into a brewery, and I've worked in a couple, but you, when you go to a brewery and you smell and you go, oh, today was a brew day. There's that specific grains smell. And the can, we have a old-timey. Yeah, the Singer Sewing Machine. It's a beautiful Yeah, that's color. their logo. 5.6 ABV. That's right where a red ale should be. Somebody says, this has got you know, 9%. I'm going, well, that's an imperial red. But a red ale should be in that 5 to 6 range. That's what I want. It's a taste that I love. It's one that I'll have a few of. So what is your take? It's not a fun conversation, but it, the whole idea of it being anti-woman. I definitely think that there are slasher movies that came out like Sorority House Massacre or Slumber Party Massacre. And both of those had sequels to them. Where oh, it's yeah. strictly kill count against women. I think there's plenty of slasher movies that came out that I watched that I think were better quality as a B-movie. That it was equal. In general, though, you will find that the men are killed more graphically in general. But the women, when they're killed, they tend to be in vulnerable positions. They tend to be either about to have sex or they tend to be in the bathroom yeah. or a shower stall. There is a even, portion of it. Even in going to Halloween, PJ Souls, she's in bed. It's the vulnerability. And, you know, honestly, it's the posters. Yeah. You go back and look at most of those posters. You know, Slumber Party Massacre, yeah. perfect example. You have like a group of women yeah. cowering. The poster art more often than not, would depict a scantily clad woman or women. It never showed some frat guys cowering before a guy with a drill. And if there was more men in it, it just showed usually the killer or the silhouette of the killer in the movie poster. Final exam, where it's predominantly the kill count is against 
all men. I think there's one woman who's killed in that entire movie. It's all a fraternity that's killed. Let's talk about some of the villains that we see in these movies. These boogeyman tend to be either faceless or masked for the most part in the movie, and they tend to be unstoppable. Although they're generally human beings or were human beings, they tend to be able to survive being hit multiple times. They tend to be able to be in multiple places where you're like, how can a human do that? They become more unrealistic as humans as the 80s go on. And again, Freddy Krueger is a perfect example. Freddy Krueger starts out, <laughs> he's demon, the ghost. demon and comes back and kills you in your dreams. But you know, you think of Michael Myers, the two big iconic ones, yeah, Michael Myers and Jason. My thing where like the 80s were so excessive and so as it goes on, it goes from like Michael Myers being stabbed in the yeah. eye by a yeah. young lady and he disappears that's and you go, well, that's spooky. And there's Donald Pleasance as the like kind of crazed voice of reason that people don't believe because he's nuts. But they become less believable because you can't get your head chopped off and then come back. Those are the two big ones that people know. They start as humans. We meet them as humans and then... They progress afterwards. But there's plenty like The Prowler, where it's a World War II outfit mask. Or My Bloody Valentine. It's a minor Super scary. Super scary. Black Christmas, you just don't see it. He's not wearing a mask, but you just get the eyeball shot. Worse, to think someone's like creeping around your home and you can't see them. That's scary. The house on Sorority Row, which is a clown outfit that's creepy, or Slaughter High had a jester outfit. Funhouse. Yeah, I, I have not you, seen Funhouse. Funhouse, Toby Hooper. Okay. it's his. Uh, I think it's his follow-up to Heat and Alive. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that someday. That movie's insane. But no, Funhouse, is a, it's a deformed young man and his dad. These kids decide they're going to stay overnight in a funhouse and they witness the young man kill this woman from the carnival. It's a bunch of carnies. And so this deformed monster comes getting them and they unveil him and you see his deformed face. That's the same in The Burning where it's based on the Cropsy myth where a camp groundskeeper gets burned and he has a burned, like a mass face and it's burned. But when you look at those characters too, you see a lot of people start trying to dive in and they can pull out portions of those villains and say, what else do they have in common? Generally, they're male. And in some cases, we have a childish arrested development, like Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees. The character in The House on Sorority Row is a mutant child. But then there's plenty that don't fit that. But you, you see people art articles saying, oh, it's about arrested development or about Freddy. You yeah. know, is not. I watched one. The uh, Prowler. Don't go in the woods. <laughs> it's a crazed mountain man who just apparently doesn't want people up on his mountain. Yeah. Um, I tried to get you to watch that one. Boy, you didn't fall for that. No, I, I, f- I felt that that was that was very much a, a wily e. coyote and the Roadrunner situation where I'm like, hey, come over here. You know, instead of like a pile of grain for the Roadrunner, it was like, don't go in the woods, Jason. And you went over and you're like, nope, not going to watch it. Yoink. And I went over to check and then the animal drops on my head. Because Don't Go in the Woods is not a good movie. And that's the thing. There are so many slasher oh, yeah. movies. And I would honestly say less than 20% are worth watching. The vast majority of them are awful. They literally are just trying to rip off someone who did something else and cash in on that. No, I agree. I wasn't generally ever a fan of this horror genre, and I have watched a lot that I thought 
that's a good movie. And there's plenty where I started to watch, and I'm like, I can't watch this movie, <laughs> and I would stop it. Pretty sure I saw My Bloody Valentine when I was a kid. That's a good movie. That is. And, I would agree. And Black Christmas, like two that I would say I really discovered or rediscovered. Funhouse is very cool, very different. It's Toby Hooper. I, you know, I like a lot yeah. of what he does. Going and saying, I'm going to go treat myself yeah. to Friday the 13th 3, which was originally put out in 3D. That was a big deal in the early 80s. <laughs> The only thing that Jaws was, 3D. It was. I saw that in the theater. Metal store. Destruction of destruction. Saw that in a drive-in. I win. I win. I saw Metal Storm in a drive-in. No, but the only reason that movie, it was terrible, and the sequels are generally really bad, but to see a 3D movie not in 3D, where like a character, like right now I'm handing you a beer, and they just get the shots, and I go, here's a beer. Or they would there would be something flying, or someone's holding a stick. And you just watch and go, oh, that's the 3D moment. It's the only reason to watch it because by and large, they're just at best rehashing what came before. Friday the 13th is really interesting to me because first of all, you, it's usually the killer follows you throughout the franchise. It's the same killer. You know, Michael is always Michael. But Friday the 13th starts, they don't set it up for a sequel. Halloween leaves itself open because you, you have that iconic, yeah. he goes over, looks, Loomis, and he goes, ah, you know, Jason's not there, and you get the creepy theme. Friday the 13th, they didn't even know a sequel could be possible because it's set up with the mom, and then she dies, and Jason died 20-some years ago. Well, up until that point, how many horror movies had successful sequels? You went back to the Universal ones, or like, oh, we make all these Frankenstein movies, I mean, or all Jaws, these vampires. You know, because they tried it with The Exorcist, and Exorcist 2 was yeah. awful, the Omen. and it flopped. The Omen, that was all right. It, Jaws. Ugh. Jaws 2. It was more successful than The Exorcist 2. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying it's good. It's <laughs> never as good, but it Only was... Only good sequel was... <laughs> Empire, Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> the Godfather 2. Aliens. <laughs> aliens. I would say Aliens. But Jaws 2 was at least successful monetarily enough to make the, the dumpster fire that was Jaws 3. And then Jaws 4, the revenge. I think one thing we need to talk about next is that point of view shot. That killer point of view shot that you find in most slasher movies. Because that is a major discussion about these types of movies. And it goes back to Peeping Tom, because that was the whole point of that. 1960. Michael Powell made this movie, and it really, it kind of died. It disappeared for a long time. It is a creepy movie. It is. It's a man, he wants to capture the face of someone right before they die, so he tricks women into modeling for him, and he has a camera, and a knife will come out of one of the legs of the tripod, and he's shooting them as he's stabbing them. It's really messed up. So, but you get that point of view shot. And that was one of the reasons that movie really got trashed. Yeah. I don't think he made any movies after that, even though it is a good movie. It's a great it movie. It's creepy it's, as it's, all. It's disturbing. It I is. mean, the name of it is Peeping Tom. Yeah. And just I just described it. And it's like, that's disturbing. The guy's creepy all around. But um, no, that point of view shot is very controversial. Because people say it's voyeuristic. It's almost pornographic. Are you identifying with this killer, sadistic celebration of what they're doing? You know, I kind of have a a different opinion. I think cinematically, it is a useful tool, particularly when you're making a movie on a cheap. Like you had described, we have switched from monsters being a Frankenstein. Like physically, you could see like, oh, there's Frankenstein. Dracula. Where now, it's more psychological. It could be your next door neighbor. 
So how do you convey that otherness, that monstrosity, that someone's stalking something? I think that camera angle does a very good job in portraying that. Because otherwise, how do you separate a stalker movie from just a crime movie with a disgruntled police on a rampage? I'll use the idea of Ted Bundy again. I'm kind of with you where it can be a disturbing visual because it's creeping around. I mean, Black Christmas uses that, it that, early that on. That does such a good... Black Christmas does a great job in laying out how to use that POV yes. shot. And sometimes, like you said, it's kind of easy. It's like saving some dough. Okay, we're going to try to put you... And it makes you a little uncomfortable because you go, I don't want to go creeping around hurting people. That's not me. And you make me uncomfortable. I don't get a thrill out of it. Whenever the point of view, first person point of view comes up, I'm always a little, a little unsettled. And I think that's good. And I you think know? that's what they're trying to do. If your next door neighbor is a serial killer and someone walks out, but if all of a sudden you see that character, oh, that's just a human with a mask on. So when you use that shot, basically like this is the other. This is the monster. And you're seeing it through their eyes. You don't have to reveal what that character looks like all the time. It does provide a sense of unease and it creates that feeling like, oh, this is a monster. And one of the biggest, most famous in Halloween you get that first person, and then they reveal it's a little kid. And, oh, man, that's really, really disturbing. The point of view shot, this is what I would say when people are, like, really angry about that shot. It makes me think, you think so little of humanity that you think people are just automatically getting off on that point of view yeah. shot. And I'm saying, no, it doesn't. It makes me unsettled. Yeah. One of the reasons I like horror movies is it makes me unsettled. It freaks me out. Related to... What you mentioned about that opening Halloween shot. In general, most slasher movies have a triggering event in the past. And Halloween has a perfect one. He comes in as he's supposed to be being taken care of. His he, sister. He murders his sister. Yes. Yeah. As she's uh, messing around with her uh, boyfriend. And there's plenty of triggering events across these slasher movies. I think one of the most disturbing ones, did you watch Terror Train? I didn't watch it this time around. I did watch it a couple years ago. So they're pranking. I think I might have been beering it up a bit. (laughs) (laughs) So it's disturbing. They're pranking. The fraternity is pranking one of their new pledges named Kenny. And they invite him into this room. He thinks he's going to have sex for the first time. Jamie Lee Curtis, she is part of the sorority sister who's, having, who's assisting the, the fraternity on this prank, and she's doing the voice, and he comes into this bedroom, and he gets in undressed and gets in bed, and it turns out the fraternity robbed a corpse from the medical school, and the woman's in pieces, and he picks her up and she falls apart. It is a disturbing scene, and he goes, of course, crazy after that. Same thing in The Burning. A bunch of summer camp kids prank the groundskeeper of the camp, and it leads to them burning him almost to death. I mean, the, the pranks are kind of awful back in the 80s. No, I, I mean, Freddy, he was murdering little kids. And the, so he was and burned the, and the by the parents went neighbors. vigilante. Yeah. So he has that. Jason's mom has been damaged by what happened to her son. He was left drowning. You know, Candyman was lynched. In My Bloody Valentine, the episode we had just released prior to this, Axel saw his dad being killed by Harry Warden. On Valentine's Day dance. Yeah. In Prom Night, you have, which also starred Jamie Lee Curtis, made right after Halloween. You have the brother seeing his sister jump out of a building after being bullied by kids and the kids leaving, not helping her. And you touched on to locations. Generally, location of these, I mean, we have a lot that take place in summer camps. A lot that take place in summer camps. Yeah. Or in a suburban neighborhood. 
a university, a high school, traditional middle class safe places. Middle, I'd say middle to upper class yeah. sororities. But then you have exceptions, like we, like we said, my bloody Valentine, blue collar slasher, Candyman is set in an urban setting. Yeah. Also notable because, generally speaking, you're seeing mostly white faces. So Candyman is unique in that the protagonist is an African American who is lynched. And now, it, would you say he's a protagonist or the antagonist, the villain or the tragic hero in this movie? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Is I mean, Candyman, what he's doing isn't nice. If I was lynched and left to be stung by bees to death, I mean, I might be a little angry. <laughs> so I mean, and I can't fault the guy. But you know, it's, it is not nice to like come back and just slaughter people. But more often than not, like I said, if you do one of those graphs where you're doing pinholes and everything, you have your outliers, my bloody Valentines. But yeah, you're going to be in like the suburbs, in a camp, at a college. In a, a lot at colleges, yeah, a lot at high schools. High schools the yeah. camp seems to be a really popular setting. One of the most disturbing ones I watched was Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp is great. Tragic, inciting incident. And it, it, has, it has such a most, weird twist ending that you're like, oh my God. It has one of the most iconic endings. And saw an interview with the actress because they had a stand-in for her. It and was, another was one a, they made sequels of. Yeah, absolutely. Sleepaway yeah. Camp was completely cracked, yeah. you know. Yeah. But she said the, the stand-in, they got this young man to come in who had a build like her and she said he basically just got wasted because it's a full frontal nude scene at the end it is with her face on it i like sleepaway camp yeah. that's a cool movie. i will watch that again before we move on to one of the next characteristics a lot of the camp movies i found the people who attend those camps to be jerks just horrible people in the burning it takes place at a camp and the one note of the burning, Jason Alexander, Fisher Stevens, Holly Hunter, it was their debut. They're all people at this camp. Every person at that camp is a jerk. They're just awful people in general. <laughs> I mean, I didn't go to camp growing up. I didn't have any camps. I mean, like in Friday the 13th, those people didn't seem bad. I know that the ones who let Jason drown. Which, they seemed uncaring. If you go back and look, that's a year after so Jason had died a year before, but he didn't die, so we move on with that. But the people who let him die apparently were just sleeping on the job. Then a year later, his mom comes and kills the people, and they are just kind of sneaking out. They're playing music, playing the Kingston Trio and stuff like that. It's just really funny. And then two people are like, let's go off and goof around, and it's nighttime. Can't yeah. remember what my point is. <laughs> <laughs> well, like one of the other characteristics is the final girl, which was Coined by a professor, Carol Clover. Generally in these movies, you have a final girl who either survives or kills the killer. Halloween, that's the template. Laurie Strode, she survives. But then we've all seen movies. There's an exception. Black Christmas, we do leave with the young lady. Yeah. She's in bed. It's just everyone abandoned her. I mean, when we last see her, she's alive. We just don't know how long it's going to be. The burning, there is no final girl. It's a final guy, Todd. But in plenty of them, prom night, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis plays the final girl again. Well, I mean, My Bloody Valentine. It's like there's the final couple. And, and a, a final whole bunch of people because yeah. they say, hey, get out of here. And so all these people get away. So it's just something you do see. And the term final girl was coined because of slasher movies. It wasn't coined because of Dracula. No. It wasn't coined because of a zombie movie where somebody's alive at the end. Again, you don't have to have it. We could sit here and write a movie that doesn't have one 
It's just in general. These are generalizations. Yeah. But you, I mean, you see it in the House on Sorority Row. You see it in the Prowler. You see it in Terror Train. You see it in Prom Night. You see that there is a final girl who's supposed to represent the person who survives and transitions into adulthood. If you want to write a, a slasher movie, here are some things you should think about putting in there. If you try to avoid all of them, don't write a slasher movie. But you probably are going to have a lot of these. And The Final Girl is one of them. If you want to make it a final yep. boy. Or I'm always a fan of like everyone dies. You know, like the person who, who thinks, oh my gosh, it's over. And then bam. Well, like in Slaughter High, which is interesting because it was a UK-US co-production. So it was shot in the UK with majority English cast, but supposed to be a U.S. high school, so it's kind of hilarious, their take. It was originally going to be called April Fool's Day, but they found out Paramount was releasing that, so they changed the name. At the end, everybody dies. I'm a fan of that. No one survives the killer. Good for you, Brits. <laughs> and, and they had a tragic inciting incident where these this group of high school students, who were such jerks, they cause the nerd. They film him. He thinks he's going to have, of course, sex with one of the most beautiful women at school. I think it's played by Carolyn Monroe, who was like way above high school age when she's making this. And of course, he comes out. They film him. Later on, they play a prank where acid pours on his face. Always a funny prank in high school. He gets burnt. He basically invites him to a reunion later on, and he kills them all. Now, granted, it's a strange trippy ending where he hallucinates if your prank is pouring acid on my face i mean paybacks are a bitch isn't that what they say you kind of root for him because you don't like any of these other characters i mean the slasher genre one thing is it's a very american thing you don't see a lot of slasher movies especially the heyday i know it influenced a lot of stuff and after that but in that heyday it was like very specifically american setting it is a very specific american genre it is. One thing we might want to just briefly touch on is these proto-slasher movies that no doubt influenced these movies. And I think one of the biggest group was those Italian... The Giallo movies. Yes. There was a slew of them by Mario Bava that had a lot of slasher elements. It's just that the location was generally different. The group of people were tend to be not youth, but middle class. That There was sometimes multiple killers rather than just one. And they generally, they were killing for a reason. I mean, you go back to early Argento. You have those serial killers going out with a knife and slashing people to death. When you see interviews with some of the people who were into, they will reference, like, I was a fan of these Italian directors. These guys were making some crazy intense movies that influenced what I was doing. You're always going to see that. And I think why Black Christmas, which was a Canadian movie, why we include it as part of the classic slasher period is it came out in 74 and then there was a long gap between Halloween. But once Halloween came out, it was just like movie after movie after movie after movie came out like right after that that were all slashers. It's so many things just being released at the right time. The theme to Halloween. If the theme had been different, would it have the same impact? We're using the Black Christmas because it also did influence... (laughs) The making of Halloween, and it's 100% a slasher. People have written, like you said, written papers about why is Halloween? Why was it such a success? 
And, and sometimes you just go, it's a confluence. Yeah, it's events. not one yep. thing. Soundtrack is really important to the, in these movies. The soundtrack can really make or break you because there's some that you go, did you guys just get any publicly available sourced music? <laughs> it's crap. I mean, there is. You play like the first five seconds of Halloween and everybody knows it. Exactly. And it, it sets a tone. The sound in Friday the 13th. And John Carpenter wrote that music. Yeah. I mean, he's John Carpenter. And I'm just going to say, like, Prom Night, a great slasher movie, has a great disco soundtrack. <laughs> that was something, Friday the 13th Part 3, it was the early 80s, but it had this just absolutely abysmal, and again, it's 3D, so like the credits were coming out at you, and so it was just really funny to watch that and go, it doesn't have the same effect in 2D. But it, yeah, it had this like early '80s synth sound that I went to, like he just had some cheap Casio and they made the soundtrack for this movie with that. <laughs> and then as I was watching these movies, and it's an example of where a genre, a subgenre of horror, quickly did have some general characteristics because very soon after Halloween. All of a sudden, you started seeing these parody movies, and I did look at some because I remember some that I thought were hilarious i started watching some of them they some of them really don't hold up over time but i look back at student student bodies which was released in 81 and there was like pandemonium in 82 and wacko in 82 and i think wacko has like joe don baker as the lead police investigator and, and saturday the 14th, saturday the 14th. <laughs> saturday the 14th is probably the only one of those there are no airplanes and the, they really aren't and, and like the horror slasher parodies there aren't like and it was that wasn't a rich time for that you had airplane reacting to all the disaster Dude. movies everything's reacting yeah. to the slasher it's like we're trying to cash in in another way but not everyone's as funny as the guys who made airplane yes so they're kind of lost <laughs> i mean nowadays you don't have a lot of people saying i'm, I'm a big fan of wacko 1982 yeah, wacko pandemonium <laughs> No, but you still have people that will, you throw a quote out there from Airplane, and they're on top of it. Absolutely. And that is a testament. Like, you know you have a, a genre that's popular and useful when somebody's trying to parody it. You want to talk about some of your favorites that you just discovered or rediscovered when we're, we're going through this? Of course, I did watch Halloween again, and I mean, that that is so good. Fun House was one of my favorites that, that I discovered. Black Christmas, that's now on my list. I, mean, I might seek that out and buy it, like to have it on DVD so I can queue it up whenever I want. You watched it first, The Prowler. Yes. I did enjoy The Prowler. It, it was a well-done movie. It was pretty scary. That one was fairly violent it was violent that one was not messing around no i mean it's like you look at halloween now and you kind of go that movie is rated r i mean i would think that your kids what's the firstborn is 14 13 13 i mean me personally i'd I'd go she could probably watch halloween she could not watch the prowler the prowler no that one was that was a brutal violent movie and tom savini worked on that you did i'm gonna put don't go in the woods on our list and force you to watch it (laughs) Because that one is so weird. And what's interesting in that is that there's a, there is a final man. He's like Australian. It's just this odd movie where it starts off with this guy getting murdered. And then it ends up being literally, a, what do they call them, ghillie suits? Yes. That, yeah. It looks like a crazed mountain man in a ghillie suit who's just running around the mountain killing anybody he comes across. It's so weird and made for like five bucks. <laughs> but but it's, I think I might just, I'm going to force you to watch it. My Bloody Valentine, I saw that when I was a kid, but I didn't remember anything very cool. Give me a couple that, you know, give me some. Uh, so that- I liked Prom Night. 
It was a Canadian movie. Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis was in it. Great soundtrack. Leslie Nielsen plays the dad, which when I see him play a straight role, growing up with Naked Gun and Police Squad and Airplane, it's always hard for me to remember like he was a dramatic actor he started, before that. He yeah. started. And, and whenever you see him doing serious, you keep waiting for him to break into, you know, things Surely silly. you must be kidding. I'm not kidding. And please stop calling me Shirley. <laughs> <laughs> the Prowler, I think that was... A very, I mean, even though there's a final girl, Pam survives. It's a sad ending, and I found that movie to be well shot. There was a lot of red herrings of who the Prowler was, but I thought it was violent and well done. But it, I mean, it bothered me now, as a movie. The dude with the feathered hair, the cop with the feathered hair, he looks like <laughs> is it Kill- Killian Murphy or Cillian? He was the he played the Scarecrow. Yeah, exactly. It does remind me. He looked yeah, exactly. <laughs> he looked exactly like that Good dude, call. except with some. Good call. I, I kept. I forgot to tell Smith bring that up, and then I thought, oh, he he probably noticed. But I apologize because I'm not 100 percent on how to pronounce yeah. the first name. Is if it's Killian or Cillian. It's an intense movie. You know, it, it is. I thought the burning was good, but I would say this: I found all the characters except for the final boy, which is Todd, one of the older camp counselors, to be just despicable like i didn't like any of them every once in a while i was kind of rooting for like i mean what a horrible prank to play on a groundskeeper because you don't like him that he's defigured for life but then it turns out like well he's not doesn't seem to be a good person to begin with because once he's released after six years of skin grafts that don't take the first thing he does is he kills a prostitute so you're like oh well he's not that good too the kids aren't that great there is some historic things about this movie one it was the weinsteins one of the first movies that they ever made and some of the court trials point all the way back to this movie but you also see a very young jason alexander who looks exactly like he does in seinfeld this is one of the the first movie he made with hair yeah and say fisher stevens looks like a little kid in this movie i also liked terror train another one that jamie lee curtis played I thought that was really interesting. It's Dave, Halloween on a train. I mean, that's that, that's how they sold it. Yeah. They said, Halloween on a train. They're like, make that movie. I'm guessing that that was the pitch for a lot of these movies, yeah. the early ones. It's, it's Halloween at a camp. Yeah. The House on Sorority Row, I think a good movie. It follows all the tropes. There is a final girl, but at the end, does she actually survive? Because in the background, you see the killer... Eric, the deformed mutant child, his eyes open up, and the movie ends on that. And I I thought that was a good ending. It's a very different movie where it's a sorority. It's seven sorority sisters. They're supposed to be out of the sorority house because they're graduating. They decide to throw a party, and the house mother's like, no, 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 you have to be out. And they're like, this house mother, she is an awful person. So they play a prank on her. The prank goes wrong and they end up killing her. And they decide... They're all going to keep the secret and hide the body and have the party. But then a person slowly starts killing off the sorority sisters, plus anybody, any other rando who's involved in this party. And it turns out sorority mom went to a strange fertility clinic and had a mutant child who she raised in the attic of the sorority house. And once a year on a special date, making sure all the people were out of the sorority house, she would allow him to walk around the house as a real child. <laughs> She's very different from the house mother in Black Christmas. <laughs> Who was a drunk. Who's a drunk, and her, her beverage of choice was sherry. She hollowed out books and hit a, bo- a little flask of sherry in there. 
like you said, hit it in, in the toilet. And it was hilarious to watch her sort of just stumble around the house. And she, she'd just reach into a closet and go, rah, rah, rah. oh, and she pulled out an empty bottle and she's all angry at herself. She's like, going to go to the other room. She stashes Sherry all over the damn house. Comic relief. Sleepaway camp I'd never seen before. And once again, all the kids at the camp are, for the most part, despicable. It is a odd movie. Defiantly odd. Angela's aunt, Doctor, the character's name is Dr. Martha Thomas. I don't know why they had her act that way. She acts as a female Joker trying to repress <laughs> being the Joker. And it goes back to Loomis. Dr. Loomis, where it's it's Donald Pleasance, and he's just awesome. He's just having so much fun overacting. But he is like this crazy weirdo. And then you have, like I think it's Ralph from Friday the 13th, you know? You're all doomed! You're doomed! You know? It's like you kind of, you have these like crazy... Scooby-Doo characters. You have these crazy characters. They're sort of like doomsayers. Well, a lot of these movies, odd, you do have uh, gatekeepers like that who yeah. warn the children, like Happy in My Bloody Valentine. They're warning I mean, Loomis, he's, a, he's like, I spent two years trying to cure him in the next... 15 years trying to keep him inside you know what and everyone's everyone looks at you know the crazy prophet and yeah. goes you're a crazy old man loomis and yeah. he goes no michael myers is here and he's killing a bunch of people dude you know they're being right crazy ralph is saying you're doomed if you go up to crystal lake you know and happy is you know he's right he's like mabel didn't die of a heart attack and she didn't she was tossed into a dryer you know so, so you know you do you have the crazy prophet no one believes but they're right and then there's some where, like, Final Exam, 1981. I don't think I can recommend it, but it's one where it follows most of the tropes, except that there's no inciting incident. You have no idea why this person is just killing people off on this college campus. But to get back to what we talked about, pranks in the 80s and movies were just way, way off. There's a scene to delay a test in a chemistry class. A fraternity decides... We're going to pretend to do a mass shooting on campus. And a van rolls up. Mass people get out. And they start shooting blanks across the campus. Everybody thinks it's funny. And it's an example where you would not make that movie now. Like, even watching that scene, I'm like, whoa. That seems wildly out of context anymore. You know, what's wrong with pulling the fire alarm? What about some sources that we looked at? I mean, the main one I used was the documentary based on a book called Going to Pieces. Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of Slasher Movies. Yeah. I, the, the movie's really cool. I mean, you're talking to Tom Savini. You're talking John Carpenter, Amy Holden Jones. That, to me, was the one. Going back to some of the books I had from school, horror books. And then just watching the movies and kind of brushing up, going, oh, this movie has this. This movie doesn't have this. I, the same thing, that documentary and the, I checked the book out of the library, Going to Pieces, The Rise and Fall of Slasher Movies. We'll link out to all the sources that we looked at. I also looked at Carol Clover's Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. I looked up a couple of Vera Dicas, and I'm, I'm sorry if I mispronounced her name. A whole slew of articles, everything from the slasher, the final girls, and the and and the anti-denouncement to horror, cinema, trauma, and the U.S. and the crisis of 1970s. We'll link out to them all. It was fun reading them, watched a lot of movies. I think we'll probably maybe do a, some of our favorite lists and post it up there too. Yeah, and I'm curious, dude, you said you weren't always a big, the biggest slasher movie fan. Did you find you gained like a more, more of an interest? When I stayed with movies I thought were done well, I did enjoy them. I still kind of cringed. Like The Prowler, I thought was a good movie. I cringed at every scene in that movie. 
Tom Savini really really let his hair down. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that, I, that some of these movies like I liked and I would recommend, and I'll probably watch again. Now I got to tell you, I went through a bunch where I started watching, and I'm like, oh no. I would really <laughs> like you to do a list of movies you started and couldn't finish. So well, I'll do two lists. <laughs> I think that would be great is just movies I could not watch the entirety of, you know? Well, and what would be great is even if you could get so specific as to say, I got 13 minutes into this yeah. one before I called it. I got 20 minutes into this one. What about you? Did you find any hidden gems that you thought, oh my gosh, I'm glad I watched it? I think I've mentioned Black Christmas, Funhouse. I'll definitely check out Funhouse now. And yeah. Black Christmas, I agree with you. That, yeah, that's yeah, a good Black, movie. Black Christmas fantastic. Got John Saxon. And Margot Kidder is like a, a surly drunk sorority <laughs> sister. You know? She was pretty awesome in that. Do a Bob um, Clark Black Christmas absolutely. Christmas story I mean, double I mean, feature. You know what? That that could end up on the on our podcast one day. That's totally a B movie. That oh, that yeah. would fit perfectly. Absolutely. So, you know, those two really stand out. My Bloody Valentine, I enjoyed the hell out of that. Yeah, I think that's so, a good movie. Then it was like revisiting a lot. I think it was Halloween four. It's just fun to watch Donald Pleasance one-up himself in the overacting department because, like, Loomis gets more insane. That's just kind of fun, but it's not a good movie because I subjected myself, like I said, to watching a lot of the sequels to iconic franchises. I saw your picture from the li- your library visit. <laughs> yeah, it's. I didn't feel like I missed out. Growing up in that era, I didn't feel like, oh, man, I wish I would have followed this franchise all the way through. I felt like, yeah, this movie stinks. I'm not going to continue. Kind of done. I, I Maybe at some point I'll watch the Rob Zombie reboot, but I think I've exhausted myself on that. There are probably still some, some slasher movies I'll go watch doing this exploration. I still want to see that movie and go watch it and check it out. Well, I'm definitely going to watch Funhouse now. Absolutely. The library had it, so it was great. I'm like, support your libraries. They're, Absolutely. They're great research. I mean, that's why I checked out most of these books to, to read about. Abs- like Absolutely. So, I mean, I will 100% recommend Snuggy, the Irish Red Ale from Textile. Thank you guys so much. It was super cool of you to, to sponsor us and give us some beer to put on this special episode. Thank you so much. I have like one, maybe two sips left. It's so good. <laughs> red ales, like there are people who are really, really into red ales. If you can get your hands on this, do so. It is such a tasty beer. And you're going to probably repost some of the pictures you took while you're out there. Oh, yeah. Once we release this episode. Oh, yeah. Remind yeah. people what a great time and what an interesting place. I will get it out. I will I will celebrate these guys anytime I can. Thank you, Nick. Thank you to Textile. Great um, place to visit. Like the Field of Dreams. People go there. I'm from there, so I've never been to the Field of Dreams. Oh, it's well, it's sort of like if people who are from New York you go to Disneyland. Or, yeah, people people from New York. They're like, I'm actually from New York. I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. That's what tourists do. But every time I go back now, Textile is a place I visit. It's super super cool. It's where I'm from. It's a local brewery. They're trying to do it right, and I'm all for it. And this one was nails. This was this, excellent. This is such a tasty beverage. Absolutely. Thank you again, Textile Brewing. Please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael.